Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane, Three Roll is cane to glass. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. In Louisiana, we've lived with water for a long time. And for a lot of kids, that begins with swimming lessons. At some point in nearly every child's life, they get thrown into the deep end. It's a good idea that they know how to swim so they don't sink. And a staggering number of kids don't know how to swim. A 2017 study found 65% of black children, 45% of Hispanic children, 40% of white children don't know how to swim. And my guest, Colleen Barczyk, founder of City of Lafayette Aquatics, better known as COLA locally, has been swimming against that tide for 20 years. The program began with just five swimmers in 2002 and now reaches around 250 kids each year through competitive programs and summer swim lessons. Cola also runs the Southwest Louisiana Swim League, working with high school and middle school swim teams in the area. And Colleen herself has been a competitive swimmer since she was five years old. And is also a chiropractor with Barchuk Chiropractic Group. Colleen Barchuk, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah. If, like me, you're scared of the ocean then maybe the open skies are a better place for you. Lafayette is home to Acadian Aviation, one of the few full-time flight training schools in the state. Uh, and it was founded by my guest, Raja Garazadine. Uh, Raja got his pilot's license at 30, bought his first plane at 34, and left the restaurant business in 2007 to launch Acadian Aviation. Over the years, Raja's students have shifted from people looking for a high-flying hobby to people looking for careers. Acadian Aviation partners with Fort Polk to help military aviators get civilian credentials. And in 2022, he kicked off a partnership with LSU Alexandria to offer a professional aviation program, one of only two in the state. Acadian Aviation also offers charter flight services at a Lafayette Regional Airport. Raja, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Um, Colleen, I personally learned how to swim in uh, Miss T's backyard. I don't know if you know who Miss T I is. I do know Okay, you know Miss T. And I, I know a lot everyone of knows who Miss T is. I know. Life is a small town. And I was thinking about it. Like, I, I don't know that it, growing up, of course, this was the 90s. It was before you started COLA. <laughs> um, you know, thinking about my parents, I've got two small kids. And so if I'm choosing, you know, a path for swim instruction, I might lean maybe if in my neighborhood somebody's got a pool or, or, or maybe a group like you. So give me a sense of what's different, you know, if I send my kid through a more structured swimming instruction than, you know, Miss T's backyard pool. Well, first of all, any swim lesson is a great swim lesson. If you're getting kids and you're learning, that's a huge step. The fact that you care about swimming is really important. Um, the difference is, is we run a program called Swim America, which is a program through United States Swimming, which is basically a program that starts and is pretty open about the fact a lot of times you hear, oh, in two weeks your kid will know how to swim. It's not really true. Hmm. It's not like riding a bike. You do forget. They need to be reminded. So that's kind of the basis of the philosophy of our program, our swim lesson program, is that it does take time and it takes a lot of steps. Hmm. It's not just as simple as let's get in and splash around and we're going to know what to do. It's a little more complicated, unfortunately. So, so maybe it's the difference between like somebody sets up like a pad in their backyard and says, we can teach you how to tumble and like actually getting some structure that like you say, it's like we're very honest about what this takes right over time. I would say yes, definitely. <laughs> it does take some time. And yeah. I think that's really important that parents know it is the biggest gift we can give anyone is to be safe in the water. So mm. 
it does take some time. Yeah, I mean, I am sort of curious about that because it's sort of affiliated then with a U.S. program. I mean, are most people coming in because eventually they want their kids to swim competitively, or, or is it really just about that safety factor? We have a little of both. We have a lot of people that come in for safety factors, um, and we have a lot that start with a safety factor and learn that their children really like swimming and really enjoy swimming. Mm -hmm. So the Swim America program starts with safety to begin with, and then it moves on to competitive strokes as you evolve. Mm. Um, so it is a really start-to-finish lesson program, hmm. which is really why we adopted it. Yeah, interesting. I mean, Raja, I uh, I understand there's a pretty well-documented pilot shortage, right? I mean, like that this is a, a problem in commercial airlines. Yes. Um, and, and my sense, correct me if I'm wrong here, is historically, you know, most commercial pilots probably have a background in military aviation and stuff. So it does kind of have me, you know, thinking, all right, well, what's, where's the bottleneck in the pipeline? Is it that there's a lack of interest among people who want to be commercial pilots or is it a lack of programs like yours to teach them? So it's a combination of both. Initially, the military was the pipeline supplier for the civilian market for airline flying. Uh, and it's the classic case of as the aircraft became more sophisticated, they became more expensive, the military bought less, trained less pilots. And so that shortage started, started back in the, in the Vietnam War. And it just gradually decreased over time. Now the military doesn't buy a lot of jets, and whatever they do, they're very sophisticated. They cost several hundred million dollars, and they tend to hang on to their pilots for longer. Hmm. So the airline industry relied on that. The civilian market was not very well developed. And as that shortage became acute, or it flipped, if you want to say, hmm. then there wasn't enough capacity for us to trade. Hmm. Uh, and the, the challenges is that your legacy airlines, your United, Delta, American, those require extensive experience before people can go fly for them. So there's kind of like a, a junior league and a senior league. Yeah. So the junior league would be your regional airlines that will fly the colors of the majors. That's where most pilots build up their experience and as they transition, they'll go to the bigger airline. So that's a three to five year transition period. Mm -hmm. And the shortage became very acute all of a sudden. COVID didn't help matters. That forced a lot of retirement. And civilian market is trying to ramp up to meet that demand. So how does a person who, who's learned, so, you know, you mentioned the, the technology is getting a lot more sophisticated. And I'm thinking about, you know, these planes, they're flying by wire, right? The idea of these computer automated jets that take people all over the country, Correct. all over the world. And, and so, I mean, how do you get from, is it that you have to have a flight simulator that can do that or does a person train you know kind of on more conventional aircraft right i mean how do you how do you make that leap i guess from, from flying a, a smaller plane to a big commercial it's it's a combination so flying is an eye hand coordination very similar to what colleen said it takes practice yeah uh it is not something that is instant or a short period of time they learn rudimentary skills, but they build them up with practice. Mm -hmm. Simulators help with that. We're introducing simulators more and more into curriculums now mm -hmm. because of that. Uh, as experience happens, they start with a single engine airplane. They'll upgrade to a multi-engine or a bimotor airplane. Then from there, they'll upgrade to maybe a turboprop. Mm -hmm. Now they're flying higher. Then from turboprop, they'll go to jets. And that's been the, the step up. As they get to the larger aircraft, uh, the 737s, the Airbuses, 
those are very specific type of training that the airlines will do. And it's mostly simulation. And they'll start as first offices and work their way up. The technology is very transferable. Most of it, all of our navigation technology started with the military. And as that cost became more affordable, it translated to the civilian market. Even our little training airplanes now have uh, computer screens and navigation screens. So we're not relying on the old fashioned uh, uh, vacuum instruments or old navigation needle pointer instruments. So, you know, Colleen, I was struck. I did this little bit of research to figure out how many kids know how to swim. Because, I mean, I kind of made this assumption that everybody goes through this period. They've all got to miss tea in their neighborhood. So I was, frankly, shocked that, that, that the numbers were that high. I mean, I expected it to be a fair number of kids, but 40%, 60%, 65%, that's a lot. I mean, what is you know, kind of a similar question to you? I mean, what's the, the, what's the bottleneck there? Is it a lack of programs like yours, or, or are parents just not sending their kids to learn how to swim? Well, similar to what Raja said, it's a little combination. And I have to say, I did a little cheer when you read the numbers because I think the numbers are staggering. Um, unfortunately, a lot of minorities are the ones that don't, don't, aren't able to, to learn. Part of the problem is, is there's not a lot of public pools around, no. and a lot of public pools don't offer some lessons. The other problem is, is sometimes there's a cultural issue. When if your mom and dad didn't know how to swim, then you're not going to learn how to swim. So it kind of gets passed on from generation to generation. Um, my assistant and my swim lesson director, every time there's a drowning, we call and we say, we've got to stop this. And it, this is as something as simple as just getting the swim lessons out there. Mm-hmm. We started a program called Sal Summers of Swim, which is actually named after Sal DC, who was a tremendous swim advocate in the area. He was an official. He was part of a swim family. They ran the oldest swim meet in the state of Louisiana. I mean, wow. he was like heart and soul. We lost him a couple of years ago, and he was always an advocate of, let's see if we can get free swim lessons out to kids that can't afford them. Mm-hmm. So we started a program, and COVID hurt us a lot, unfortunately, because you couldn't bring kids into the pool, you couldn't get them there. But I guess we've been going for a while, so I really feel like we are making a difference locally. We go into schools, we talk about swim safety, we talk about water safety. A lot of kids just don't know. No one knows you shouldn't swim alone. No one says you shouldn't go in the deeper water if you can't see the bottom. No one knows any of those things if you've never been exposed to that. So it is a combination of both. It's definitely a combination of parents, not knowing how to swim and not being able to pass that on, or kids not having the opportunity to actually get some lessons. I find that surprising because, you know, this is such like a water sport culture. Now, I mean, I didn't really grow up with, like, you know, I didn't do a lot of fishing. I didn't necessarily do a lot of, like, jet skiing or whatever. But it's still interesting. We we are surrounded by water. Louisiana is a water sport culture. And yet, I mean, so, so do those... Have you found in your experience that those numbers kind of bear out that we're dealing um, with that level? Of- no, it's actually scarier to me. If you ever think about it, every year, two or three times, you hear of a fisherman falling off of a boat and not making it, not right. knowing how. So there's a tremendous amount of fishermen and, you know, in, in a large amount of communities that are on a boat every day that don't know how to swim. Mm-hmm. So we are surrounded by water. So I think we're even in a more crisis community. Sure. Um, you know, a lot, there are fewer public pools. A lot of states have a pool at, attached with every high school, and that just doesn't happen here, huh. um, which is kind of a crime, and we're working on that. But um, it is it is kind of a crisis, to be very honest. This area is filled with bayous and lakes and swamps and, and all sorts of situations, coolies even, mm-hmm. that we are more at risk. So mm-hmm. it is more vital that we get the message out. And the message isn't just from me. It needs to be from everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, Raja, kind of thinking about this in terms of letting people know that these opportunities exist, right? Um, you know, like I said at the beginning, I mean, my sense was if I wanted to be a pilot, I should have joined the military or this is a path that I should have gotten on 
longer ago. I'm, I'm 37, right? So you bought your first plane at 34, right? You, you, yes, sir. You, you were like kind of in a great example of somebody who said, like, look, it's never too late to really give this a shot. You got your pilot no. license at 30. So, I mean, are people starting to get that message that if they want a career in aviation, they can have it? Or is it yes. still hard for them to know that? It is. Uh, it is. The word is out that there is opportunities there. Yeah. And the pay has gotten better. This, uh, uh, back in 2010, there was a, an accident with Colgan Air up in Buffalo. And that shifted the whole industry. And since then, the pay has improved. Back in 2008, when I started this business, the average pay for a regional pilot that would fly out of Lafayette was about $8 an hour. That's baffling. And people did it because that's what they needed to do in order to pay their dues, as they say, because aviation is an apprenticeship to mastership type thing. It's really a blue-collar vocation. And the pay was scandalous back then. And since then is when the FAA has realized, the industry has realized that we just can't keep going through this. So the pay has improved substantially. It costs a substantial amount of money to, to achieve all your pilot ratings. You know, and if you do a college university program, it's between eighty to hundred thousand dollars a year. So if I'm a parent and I'm gonna foot that kind of money for my child, and then when they graduate, they're gonna qualify for food stamps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Scandal can't even have a checkbook. Uh, I wouldn't encourage him to go that. But now that the pay has improved dramatically children are or young people are pursuing that Mm -hmm. a couple of things that was always that kind of stopped people in their track with aviation number one is what you said i have to be in the military or military experience the other thing is people say i have to have perfect eye vision (laughs) and and that is true for for fighter jets it is true to an extent if you're going to fly f-18s f-16s f-22s but it's not true for civilians and it's really not true for a lot of the military. Uh, most of the military flying is not jet fighters. It's cargo, logistics. Uh, they fly their supply aircraft. And the civilian market is not. As long as the vision is correctable, it, it is fine. Hmm. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with Raja Garazadeen of Kadian Aviation and Colleen Barczyk of City of Lafayette Aquatics. So, Colleen, you mentioned earlier that, that you know maybe some other communities, the way that they approach this, they might have more public pools or, or there are more public resources that are available to those kids. So, I mean, I guess I'm curious, like, how COLA tries to bridge that gap. I mean, you're still kind of operating a, a business. I'm, I'm assuming that you guys charge some fees for, for lessons. I mean, what do you all do to try and, you know... I don't know, keep that door open, I guess, to folks who may not be able to afford it. Well, we, we built our own facility next to an office, which yep. was kind of crazy, but wow. wonderful at the same time. Um, and we partnered with the city. Um, we helped run some, some pools that, that way. We also run a, a lot of water safety stuff out of the water. We run a water safety day every day in May where we invite kids to come and we have booths and games and and the fire truck comes and helicopters come. You know, so it's a fun day for kids to come and yeah. we talk about water safety and we talk to parents about water safety. So we do try to bridge that gap because unfortunately there aren't as many simple avenues so kind of you have to take a backdoor approach. Hmm. And the schools have been really great with us to let us come in and do a presentation on things to think about. Papers go home with moms and dads, a coloring sheet goes with them. Mm-hmm. So we started at a young age, so hopefully we might not see the results quickly but we'll see them as generationals pass on and on. And that's the ultimate goal. Plus it helps because 
I'm also a competitive swimmer, and when we run some lessons the way we do, kids learn that they really like swimming, and there's a lot of opportunities for kids to get college scholarships to swimming. So it kind of all ties together. Plus, we're kind of a little crazy. I'm a little bit overly passionate probably about what I do. Some people say I'm extreme, but I love what I do, so it makes it a whole lot of fun, and I don't really feel like it's a job. It's something I really love. So. Yeah, if it sounds extreme or radical, it's just passion. That's okay. That's, that's, that's allowed. In, in, we're going to go in, with that. In, yeah, it's good. It's <laughs> You know, and it's interesting. So when I was in college, I, I hate to make this all about me, but I find this, I just happened to go to a school where we were required to take swimming classes. And that was like a thing that they said. So if you graduated from Emory University in Atlanta, you were required to either have certified that you could swim or take a swimming class at the university level, right? And so, you know, it's been a thing to me, like, I guess there's an extent to which I, I wonder how much that's even a given that a, that a person kind of reaches adulthood. I mean, and you guys teach... Adults, I mean, do you find that folks are coming in and they're saying, like, I, is it I had a scare and I want to learn how to swim? Or is it I, I, my kids are going to learn how to swim and so I want to learn how to swim too? It's a little both. Might I say that there are some great academic institutions like Emory, like Dartmouth, that require it, yeah. um, which I think is such a huge plus. I wish every institution required it. Um, but we do, we do kind of hit both angles. Um, we have a lot of adults that come in that have never learned how to swim. And learning to swim as an adult is a very, very difficult thing. Mm -hmm. But I think they might not have had a scare with themselves, but they've had a scare with their child. Mm. Where we've been, at, we, we've been at the beach and he got out of my, my grasp and I didn't know what to do. Or unfortunately they hear of a neighbor or a friend that's had a drowning and then it kind of shakes them to the point we have to do something, which is a horrible way to learn. We'd much rather learn with some common sense, but we hit it both angles and there are a lot of adults that don't know how to swim that do come in and it's a hard hard lesson to learn if you're an adult what why is it so much harder for an adult to learn how to swim i think there's much more fear i think naturally you're more aware of the dangers when you're a kid you're kind of fearless you know, and jump in and i'll be fine so it's a little bit easier to learn kids aren't as the fear factors kind of mm. cut out when you're an adult even just putting your face in the water sometimes is scary it's a frightening feeling we're in a whole different element um, it's not like walking on land. Being in a different element really is a difficult thing to learn. And when you have the fear in the back of your brain, it makes it more challenging. Raja, does, does fear enter with, with the folks that you work with? I mean, you know, I, I know planes are quite safe. I mean, statistically, of course. But, I mean, a person might come in and say, like, you know, I could, I could, I could envision a similar dynamic where somebody's like me saying, like, I don't know if I should be flying a plane. I don't know that I could handle that. Uh, age makes a big difference. So as we get older we have more experience, if you want to say, in our register, in our brain. And anything new that we want to do, we compare it to what's in our register. And if there's things in there that we've had negative about it or concerns about it or anxiety about it, that starts to throw the flags mm. that we're not, you know, I'm not comfortable with this, I don't want to do that. Uh, it's good that, you know, with Colleen's business and also in aviation, the younger they are, the more you can... You can teach them the skills, and from there they can develop the attitude towards safety and grow with it. Adults generally, if they want to learn to fly, it's because they have a need or it's a bucket list. I need to travel or it's something I wanted to do all my life. Uh, safety does factor in. You have to talk to them about it. For the most time, pilots, you know, accidents have always been a chain of events. It always started out with something. And I think with drowning, it's the same thing, is that there, there was something that, you know, would have been the trigger to say, okay, this is where we need to stop. Mm -hmm. But it continues as a chain. Yes, adults do express uh, fear. Uh, 
most of the time we, we kind of, uh, I read a book written by a flight instructor a long time ago about really how to become a successful flight instructor. And one of the things in the book he said, you know, he said, your student is looking forward to the day he gets his pilot certificate so he can start flying, but his family is dreading that day because now they have to go fly with him. <laughs> uh, for some people, there's just there, there's a there's a sense that flying must be like adventuresome or risky or dangerous, and it's really not. If you look at our airline standards in here. Uh, there's 26,000 flights a day in the United States and we will go five six seven years without any incidents in there and that's in the millions of flights before something happens hey, Roger how young are kids learning to fly I mean like when you when you got kids coming into your school are you getting like 10 year olds in there oh, no, I mean, no 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 the, the, minimum age, the minimum age is 16 okay but we're getting 20 year olds 21 year olds people that young men that have been in college now they want to change directions uh, that's what we're getting mostly we're getting people in their 20s and early 30s 30s is usually when people want to make a career change this is when you know their first career change and that's where there's interest in that the university program with LSU for private enterprises, our challenge in meeting the pilot demand has been financing or funding. Hmm. Uh, you know, $60,000, $80,000 for an individual, that's substantial. And a, a, a college program is the proper way. For the, you know, the state is helping finance it. There's public financing in it. Hmm. Uh, hopefully down the road, more universities will adopt aviation programs to meet that shortage. Hmm. Uh, but right now, it's it's a challenge. Uh, so, Colleen, you've been a competitive swimmer since you were five. Yes. So I'm kind of one, just kind of wondering what competitive swimming looks like for five-year-olds. But 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 also um, on the other end, which is you know, I mean, you think of like I was a soccer player. They're adult soccer leagues. I mean, how how long do people tend to swim competitively? Well, a long time. Yeah. Um, a really long time, actually. <laughs> I started swimming at about five. I think I was probably hyperactive as a child, so my parents threw me in the pool to burn some energy. Yeah. So at five, it's fun. There's summer league, you swim at 25, you get a snow cone, all is life with the world, right with the world. Um, but there's a tremendous pipeline actually here. We put over 50 kids in college on scholarship or scholarship programs for swimming. Um, so you swim, you swim through high school, you swim in high school league, and you still love it, and then you look at colleges, and there's a lot of options. I mean, there's D1 programs, there's... You know, that's the SEC and the, the Power Five conferences. There's a lot of D2 programs, which are smaller schools. There's a D3 program like Emory, who right now just won D3 Nationals. All right. Huge deal. Um, <laughs> then there's also, like, both my kids swim. I had a kid that swam for TCU. I have a kid that swam for Georgia. I've, I've got kids that are – got a kid right now that just signed for South Dakota from wow. here. Um, and there's also master's programs. It's something that really is a lifelong sport. So there is a great pipeline, and it's something – I mean, we run open swim at this facility we run, and we have probably an 85-, 90-year-old guy comes in every day and swims his workout, and he's in great shape and doing well. So it really is one of those things that once you've adopted, it can be a lifestyle change, and I think it's a lifestyle change that you can adopt for the rest of your life, and you will be healthier and happier mentally and physically because of it. So there's a great pipeline out there. Hmm. So parents should know that, that there really are opportunities. You know, Raja, it, it strikes me, you said that, you know, kind of early on in your business, a lot of people that were sort of coming in were, folks were kind of ticking this off as a bucket list item. I've always wanted to fly a plane, but, you know, it's just suppose I get my, my pilot's license, but, you know, I don't have the finances to buy a plane. I mean, what options are there for me to actually continue enjoying it outside of the context of instruction? 
almost every flight school rents airplanes. They rent airplanes to, to, to flight, in, you know, to any licensed pilot. So they rent airplanes, and people rent them to stay proficient. Uh, when it comes into rentals for, like, distances or time or scheduling, then you get into the realm where, you know, you'll need to buy an airplane or partner with people in an airplane. But for the typical rental, day rentals to go and back, uh, go have lunch somewhere. We refer to it the $100 hamburger. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll spend $100 to go eat a $2 hamburger somewhere. Uh, that type of things, every flight school in Louisiana has that has a rental fleet yeah. that people rent from. Uh, and, and they rent for their own private enjoyment? I mean, like if their I, private enjoyment. They, they rent the airplane. They pilot it themselves. Uh, let's say they'll fly from here. They'll go to New Orleans. With most pilots, if you look around, you know, let's say if you have food, I'll fly. You know, if you, <laughs> and if there's any restaurant on the field or close by, they'll go there. For instance, uh, in Yiberia, Alexandria, Lake Charles, uh, the fixed base operators uh, that operate out of there that store airplane cell fuel, they offer lunches for a dollar if you buy gas. They have cafes in Lake Charles. They'll go get you a poor boy from Leonard's. In Alexandria, they have a cafe. In New Iberia, they'll cook food and $2 lunches. And people will fly for that. They'll, they'll get to practice. Mm -hmm. They'll get to stay proficient. They'll have a lunch. And they'll make it a social event. You know, they'll bring a buddy or two with them. So get your pilot license, fly to Alexandria, have a po' boy, but just don't get in the pool for another hour after that. That's what I would <laughs> Exactly. Not very true, but Well, we're always trying to myth bust here, so I apologize if I'm just spreading rumors again. Um, thank you guys so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank welcome. you for doing what you do. We appreciate it. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana have been flight instructor Raja Garazadeen of Acadian Aviation and swim instructor Colleen Barchek of City of Lafayette Aquatics. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRBS, and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Raja and Colleen by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. And you can find and subscribe to the podcast in your podcast app and on our website. It's acadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from the show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Aster Morgan. You can find more of Aster's photos at astermorgan.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Today's show is engineered by Kieran McIntosh. Associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. And I'm Christian Mater, editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit news app. For more stories that go deeper than the headlines, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. Right